Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called National Tragedies in Light of Spiritual Truths, the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 11, 2011. A month ago, my wife and I were in New York City and went to the World Trade Center site. Standing there and contemplating what happened made the hair on my neck and my arms stand up. America will never forget the trauma of the 9-11 tragedy, nor should we. Ten years later, people still remember where they were when they heard the news. I was badgering my son to turn off the television and get to school. He said something really bad was happening on CNN. On September 11, 2001, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airliners in a coordinated suicide attack. One plane slammed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, another into the South Tower, a third one plowed into the Pentagon, and a fourth plane that had targeted the U.S. Capitol or the White House crashed into rural Pennsylvania after passengers wrestled control from the hijackers. Nearly 3,000 people from 90 countries died in the carnage, including 343 firefighters and 60 police officers. Although he first denied any responsibility, on October 30, 2004, Osama bin Laden said that he, in fact, had directed the attacks. Why did Al-Qaeda attack America? How should Christians respond? Ten years is a long time, but it still might not be long enough to understand the tragedy. Preaching at the National Cathedral after the event, Billy Graham observed that no one really knows why such catastrophic evils happen. And so what follows in this week's essay are a range of reflections more than an adequate explanation. Throughout history, nations and even non-state actors have justified their wars with all sorts of rationalizations, territorial expansion, retaliation, protection, self-defense, and to spread their own economic and political ideology. America is no exception in this regard. The 33-page National Security Strategy of 2002, for example, praised American democratic capitalism as the single sustainable model for national excess and the right and true for every person in every society. The document said that we would export our way of life to every corner of the globe, and that we would act unilaterally and preemptively against any nation that tried to thwart us. Needless to say, some countries didn't like such hubris. The attackers were partly motivated by their hatred of Western values, secular democracy that separates church and state, religious pluralism, freedom of speech, freedom to vote, the privacy of the individual, and toleration of dissent. For Muslim extremists and a conservative Americans, this tends to be a black and white view of the world with little middle ground or ambiguity. 
We remember how Bush famously said, nations are either for us or against us. On one side, there's an axis of evil that wills us harm. And on the other side, enlightened people who champion the true, the good, and the just. I'm not sure I find this view helpful. The Arab Spring, after all, shows that many Muslims aspire to at least some Western values. Other people point to American foreign policy. A 1998 fatwa by Osama bin Laden objected not to our values, but to three specific crimes and sins. Number one, our support for the United Nations sanctions against Iraq from 1990 to 2003 that hastened the death of a million citizens. Number two, our biased support for Israel to the detriment of the Palestinians. And number three, the presence of our numerous military bases in their sacred Muslim lands. The fatwa also mentioned America's plundering of Arab resources, support for abusive regimes, and undermining self-determination by dictating policy. In this view, the 9-11 attacks were a classic case of what Chalmers Johnson calls blowback. <clears throat> blowback is another way of saying that a nation reaps what it sows. What many people hate, then, about America, argued Johnson, is our global militarism and predatory economic policies, which virtually assure retaliations against us for decades to come. Instead of acting prudently, we have acted with what has become predictable condescension towards other nations, and with myopia about the consequences. Our overwhelming and global military economic threat Exercise with little fear of retaliation is, said Johnson, quote, seeding resentments that are bound to breed attempts at retaliation, end quote. These are partially reasonable explanations, but they are not valid excuses. There's no excuse for al-Qaeda's global terrorism. Some Christians appeal to God's providential intervention Jerry Falwell infamously construed the 9-11 attacks as divine punishment for the wickedness of pagans, abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, the ACLU, and people for the American way. I point the finger in their face, said Falwell, and say, you help this happen. Pat Robertson, a guest on the show, nodded in agreement, saying, well, I totally concur. In their view, America's policies aren't wrong because they're politically imprudent as a matter of practice. Rather, they're morally wrong as a matter of principle because they violate God's standards. The remarks of Falwell and Robertson are reckless and hateful. I'm uncomfortable with linking divine judgment and national disaster, whether for America or for any other nation. It's one thing to affirm that God acts in the history of nations, but quite another to claim to know exactly how, when, where, or why. And yet, having said that, no less than Abraham Lincoln once described the Civil War as God's judgment on American slavery. Christians face particular difficulties in deconstructing the attacks. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world are different. Personal spiritual truths in the Bible 
do not translate into national public policies for a country. The Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer described this dilemma during the Nazi horrors. In a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr, he said that, quote, German Christians faced a terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. In other words, the good of the gospel and the glory of a nation often collide. For if Jesus is Lord, then all the Pharaohs and Caesars of the world are not Lord. Maybe America is somehow exceptional in the world? I think the answer is yes and no. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural influence, America is unrivaled. In that sense, it's accurate to say that America is exceptional, although there's no reason to think that our exceptionalism will last forever, or that all of our influence is good. But since Christian identity is ultimately spiritual and not political or national, from a Christian point of view, America is no more or less exceptional in God's eyes than Iceland, India, or Iraq. The historian Rebecca Lyman observes that the early gospel developed in the context of Greek, Roman, and Jewish exceptionalisms, and has ever since been tempted to mimic rather than to subvert them. Of course, it's natural to love and take pride in your own country. But when it comes to geography, cultural, nation, and ethnicity, Christians are egalitarians rather than exceptionalists. We reject any and all forms of narcissistic nationalism. For us, there's no geographic center of the world, but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, and every place, the gospel does not privilege any country as exceptional. An Iranian Muslim is no further from God's love than an American Christian. A Honduran Pentecostal is no closer to God's love than an Oxford atheist. This Christian egalitarianism subverts all geopolitical nationalisms. Should Americans forgive the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks? I've been wondering about a possible parallel scenario. Could you or should you forgive Dr. Mengele, the infamous Nazi angel of death? That question haunted Eva Kaur, who tells her remarkable story in the documentary film Forgiving Dr. Mengele. Eva Kaur and her twin sister Miriam spent 10 months in Auschwitz. Along with many other twins, they were separated from their families and subjected to Mengele's horrific medical experiments. After liberation by the Soviets when she was 10 years old, and then 10 years in Israel, Eva relocated to Terre Haute, Indiana in 1960 and raised a family. Eva returned to Auschwitz for the first time in 1995 for the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camps. 
and on that occasion she did the unthinkable. She read aloud her personal official declaration of amnesty to Mengele and the Nazis. To be liberated from the Nazi camps was not enough, she said. She needed to be released from the pain of the past. To extend forgiveness without any prerequisites required of the perpetrator, said Eva, was an act of self-healing. Through the act of forgiving your worst enemy, Eva said that she experienced the feeling of complete freedom from pain. As you might imagine, many Jews were outraged by her act. In the lectionary readings for this week, Jesus and Joseph both commend the healing power of forgiveness. Joseph believed that God had a larger providential purpose for Israel beyond the private wrongs he had suffered at the hands of his brothers. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we read, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. At least four times Joseph reassures his nervous brothers, It was not you who sent me to Egypt, but God. And so the story concludes. Joseph reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And in the gospel for this week, Peter asked Jesus, How many times shall I give my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Forgiving someone seven times is generous in the extreme. But Jesus upped the ante and expanded the arithmetic of forgiveness. Jesus told an outlandish parable about an unmerciful servant who received forgiveness for his own enormous debt, but then instead of forgiving, extending forgiveness for a tiny debt that he was owed, he imprisoned his debtor. In the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, he instructed us to forgive not merely seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven. The forgiveness that characterizes his kingdom is beyond calculation or comprehension. Jesus also linked receiving forgiveness to offering forgiveness. He established a law of proportionality. We can expect divine forgiveness in the measure that we extend human forgiveness. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. And in the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our own sense of the need of forgiveness is the basis upon which we freely forgive others. We can only hope for ourselves what we lavish upon others. Forgiveness of this magnitude finds its basis not only in our own sense of need, but even more sure and certain in the character of God himself as a fundamentally forgiving God. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God forgave you. And in this week's epistle, accept one another just as God has accepted you. 
Frederick Luston, co-founder of Stanford University's Forgiveness Project, says that forgiveness reduces anger, hurt, depression, and stress, and leads to greater feelings of optimism, hope, compassion, and self-confidence. Luskin has conducted numerous workshops and research projects on forgiveness. He's worked with a wide variety of people in corporate, medical, legal, and religious settings. In his book, Forgive for Good, Luskin elucidates what Eva Kaur experienced in what Joseph and Jesus taught, that in forgiving, we can become heroes instead of victims in the stories we tell. For books this week, I review Charles Freeman, Holy Bones, Holy Dust, How Relics Shaped the History of Medieval Europe. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2011, 306 pages. The Cradle and Cross of Christ. The Milk of Mary and the Rod of Moses. The Right Arm of John the Baptist, the Tooth of Peter, and the Head of Lazarus. These are just a few of the religious relics that included virtually every kind of object in medieval Christianity. Relics served many purposes for both kings and clerics. They were object of prestige, forms of patronage, talismans of power, and most certainly sources of immense profits. Most of all, though, they were a gateway to the supernatural that mediated a tenuous relationship between a holy God and sinful humanity. Relics were an avenue to intercession in heaven, a hope for the miraculous on earth, and nothing less than public demonstrations of sacred power. It would be hard to exaggerate the influence of relics in medieval life. Nonetheless, the obvious case against relics was made by many people. As the sun does not need the lamp, wrote Basil of Caesarea, so also the church of the congregation can do without the remains of the martyrs. It is sufficient to venerate the name of Christ. Other critics observed that people enjoyed a direct relationship with God and didn't need mediating objects. Still others supported relics in principle, but were disgusted and appalled by their practice. Uncritical enthusiasm, hocus-pocus, explo- exploitation of the poor, and so on. Even the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 worried that relics were, quote, being exposed for sale and exhibited promiscuously. But in turn, these objections provoked even more sophisticated and sometimes tenuous, defenses of the role of relics. By the 16th century, complex forces produced a virulent iconoclasm among the Protestant reformers. Specific responses varied according to each town, but by the 1520s there began a systematic destruction of relics, images, sculptures, altarpieces, and wood panels. In Basel, Switzerland, for example, in 1529, town authorities destroyed relics in a public bonfire. 
To avoid chaos, other towns closed churches and hired craftsmen to disassemble the many forms of sacred sacrilege. John Calvin wrote his treatise on relics in 1543. Renaissance thinkers questioned the whole concept of the miraculous. The Catholic Church pushed back, of course, in the Counter-Reformation. Relics were far too deeply embedded in the practice of the ordinary laity to be erased. And after all, we read in Acts chapter 19 how handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched by the Apostle Paul healed the sick and cast out evil spirits. The title of the book, Holy Bones, Holy Dust, by Charles Freeman. For film this week, we go to the continent of Africa in the country of Chad. The title, A Screaming Man, from the year 2010. Adam had been a pool attendant at an upscale hotel in Chad for 30 years. People nicknamed him Champ because of his own swimming exploits as a younger man. The pool has been my whole life he says, but his crisp white pool uniform and the artificial calm of the swanky hotel belie bigger troubles outside the hotel. His friend and chef David is fired. His son Abdel replaces him as the pool attendant, and he himself is banished to the front gate in an ill-fitting uniform. When his wife complains of his brooding silence and says that he's changed, he observes it's the world that's changed. And so the deeply personal then collides with the explicitly political when Abdel is mysteriously conscripted into the Chadian army to fight against a rebel insurgency. A heartbreaking cassette to his girlfriend bemoans the heat, dust, and death. In the opening scenes of this drama, father and son frolic in the hotel pool, while in the clothing scenes, a death at a riverbank raises questions about a father's choices. Screaming Man won the jury prize at the 2010 Cannes Film Festival. The film is in French and Arabic with English subtitles. And finally, for this important Sunday, the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we've posted the famous peace prayer of St. Francis. St. Francis lived from 1182 to 1286. We really don't know the author of this classic prayer, and it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi. By one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But the peace prayer certainly emulates his longing to be an instrument of peace, reconciliation, and redemption in our fallen world. And so we close with the poem, The Peace Prayer of St. Francis. <clears throat> Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, 
faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in self-forgetting that we find, and it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 11th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.